Welcome to Watershed's June podcast. My name is Mark Cosgrove. I'm the cinema curator here at Watershed. I'm very delighted to welcome special guest for this month, Sean Wilson, who is a known quantity in Bristol for his film writing. Is also going to be more wider known if he's not already through this fantastic book that Sean has written, The Sound of Cinema, Hollywood Film Music from the Silence to the Present. But first of all, welcome, Sean. Hey, Mark. Great to be back on here again. <laughs> yeah, good to have you. And in between times, you have given birth to this book, this fantastic, <laughs> this fantastic book on a fantastic subject. It's an alien-style gestation. I'm sure COVID helped. <laughs> it did. I was thinking about this earlier, actually. I was thinking, would I actually have done this had the pandemic not wrought these circumstances because you know the pandemic basically caused everything to slow down if not stop altogether and I felt my headspace was somehow cleared a little bit in order to accommodate this kind of project in the early pitching stages following the success of the pitch to McFarlane the publishers I then as we all did found myself in another lockdown at the very beginning of 2021 when I actually started to write it which was very serendipitous and it it went on from there you know the most of the writing process took up the first you know four months of the year you know I got about two-thirds of the book written in complete isolation in lockdown it did then subsequently roll over into July but it's very very odd how these things work out sometimes I think. Whilst you've got interviews with film musicians and composers you did that during lockdown? No, those were pre-existing interviews I've done probably over the last five to ten years with with various outlets such such as Film Score Monthly and Composer Magazine, um, who they've given me loads of opportunities to talk to some really, really extraordinary individuals. I had these interviews lying around on, you know, Word documents and audio files. I thought one way to zhuzh up the book and to impart a bit more personality into it was to basically import the direct thoughts of these composers to my interviewed over the years. So the likes of Terence Blanchard, Howard Shaw, Alexandre Desplat, Michael Giacchino, David Arnold, Laura Cartman, all extraordinary leaders in their field in, in different ways. And I thought when you can hear the practice and the routine as related directly from the source, from you know behind the scenes, I thought that would give the book more life and more of a contextual framework and it would create more engagement and I hope it does that. It certainly does. I mean, I've read it over the weekend. You kindly gave me a, a copy of it and reading it, it's just fantastic the insights that they bring to it. I mean, I have to I have to declare an interest, uh, Sean. You, as you know, we run Filmic, which is a strand exploring the creative connections across film and music. We do it in partnership with St George's and the now Bristol Beacon. And it's been going for a, a good few years now. Phil Johnson, a writer and, and curator, and I sort of came up with the idea. And it's that thing about, as you well know, that music is as integral a part of making the meaning of film. It's an often overlooked, but increasingly being celebrated and your books, as I say, a fantastic addition to that. So we put on film and music related events. Obviously, COVID hit and we've not been able to do anything. And what's brilliant is with your book coming out, I've asked you to curate a strand of films that speak to the book. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But just one observation from doing filmic is that, I don't know if you found this, but I've talked to a lot of musicians. And actually, I find talking to musicians about film, I get more insights sometimes through talking about the music in the film. You go, oh, oh, I just didn't get that. I mean, it's really fascinating what they bring to it. 
It's a real peek behind the curtain, isn't it? Because you realise how ephemeral and how complicated the creation of filmmaking is on, on all fronts, particularly when you throw music into it, because music can completely alter the personality of a given project, whether there is music, whether there isn't any music, what's the kind of music that's going to be in a film, what themes are there, is it going to be atonal, dissonant, rhythmic, classical, jazz, whatever. Film music is a really, really interesting test case because really away from a given movie, it doesn't really have any autonomy. It doesn't really have any life. You know, its life is determined by the movie that wills it into existence. That's not to say that there aren't film scores that, that can't be listened I'm, to. I'm, I'm, I was, I was going to say, yeah. um, I think yours and Star Wars. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I think if a film score takes on a life of its own, then that's a sign of how truly extraordinary that particular film score is. I mean, you mentioned like Jaws, John Williams there. I mean, John Williams, absolutely top of the leaderboard as, as one would expect. But what comes out of my conversations with film composers, and hopefully this comes through in the book, is that the creation of film music is a collaboration. It has to be a collaborative exercise. And the, the composer is there to impart their own voice onto the movie, but they are there to serve the film. They are there to serve what the film needs. And they have to, in many ways, subsume their ego to an extent. And there's a reason why they're brought onto a particular movie. How do we bring that part of our personality, but not so much that it swamps the movie or ruins the movie or takes away from it? It's a very, very delicate balancing act. And then away from the aesthetic impulses you then have the challenges of well okay so the composer had a fantastic relationship with the director the producer the, the, the showrunners whatever but then you've got the mix you've got you've got the sound mix you've got the dubbing you've got the stems and there's no guarantee that even if the collaboration has been good that the music is then going to be mixed particularly effectively in the final movie in the course of writing the book i found a very interesting quote from danny elfman who's scoring dot strange in the multiverse of madness that's out now and danny elfman wrote the score for tim burton's batman back in 1989 and you know, one of the defining superhero scores. I cite it in the book um, quite openly because it's a masterpiece. But Danny Elfman said he wasn't happy with the mix of the original Batman score. He really unhappy with it. And it surprises me. I mean, I'm not trained in that way, but it would seem to be very well mixed to my relatively untrained ears. But he was just not happy with it. It's just one example of how complicated a process this is and how much is at stake, you know, technically and emotionally with it. When you're saying there about those kind of partnerships, I was thinking of Bernard Herrmann and Alfred Hitchcock, which was kind of very strong partnership. And Bernard Herrmann was very adamant that music was 50% of the film. You know, the film wasn't just the images. It was 50% of it. He was quite clear about that. And I'm sure we'll come on to that. Um, it was rather bullish and rather singular. And you've got to kind of <laughs> admire him for that. Because you don't get a lot of characters like that now. I mean, he would be an absolute force of nature today. He would tear the place up. It was really quite fascinating to see that. And, and to stand up with Hitchcock and say, I am 50%. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's like, no, I'm not doing a pop score for Torn And You get Bernard Herman, you get the Bernard Herman voice. And then that's what broke up their partnership track. Tragically, and I think, as I understand it, they never spoke to each other again. Yeah. After that, even though they tried, I think Hitchcock tried reconciliation, but it never worked out. But then to come back to the book, and I'm sure we'll talk more about Herman and Hitchcock. You know, the book is is such a, a range, and you do start in the early days, and it's interesting, isn't it, that we talk about silent cinema? But cinema was never silent, was it? No, it's. I mean. It's fascinating. There, There is a real schism. And I, this was a real educational experience writing this particular part of the book. When you go right the way back into the annals of history, the further back you go, the more careful one has to be with one's research and the more educational it tends to be. There was a real schism in as much as 
you know, like you say, cinema was never really silent, but in the days of what we would call silent cinema, film music in many ways, to an extent it had more autonomy because it wasn't battling with as many elements. It wasn't battling with the actors' voices. You know, there was a, there was often an improvisational quality, particularly in the very, very early days of cinema when you had pipe organs that could also replicate sound effects, when you had in-house pianists, but there was more autonomy because music was the inner dialogue of the characters. That's the way it worked. And then when you got the transition into talking pictures and then all of a sudden you could hear the actors' voices and then music then had to triangulate up with synchronised sound and dialogue and all these warring elements then had to come together. And it's almost like music wasn't put on the back foot, but it was no longer at the top of the pyramids, so to speak, like it had been. And that's the part of the book that I really enjoyed writing, the way that the Vitaphone company in the 1920s, the patent for which was eventually bought by Warner Brothers, brought synchronised sound into cinema and completely took everything in, in a bold new direction. And this is all bound up. Al Jolson was at the forefront of this. I mentioned in the book that Al Jolson improvised a line of dialogue that they then recorded on the soundtrack and people were blown away. They're like, hang on, he spoke? This was the jazz singer. It was, yeah. And that one little throwaway ad lib line completely sent Hollywood pictures spiraling in a completely different direction. Dialogue had to be factored in. So then there was mm. a different relationship, I guess, with music. It was having to play a different role. Yeah, it was it, it wasn't subjugated, but it was no longer it was no longer the be all and end all of what what the characters were thinking and feeling that the preceding this, there's what I also referred to in the book in the early days of cinema, the expressive versus illustrative argument, you know, does music express yeah. outer sort of scenery and, and outer imagery, or does it get underneath the skin of the characters and do a more subconscious, like working on the emotions thing? And one could argue that, well, as film music has gone on, there's more of an attempt for film music to not simply replicate what we're seeing if we're for example presented with a fantastical landscape okay you might get big brass chords you know diminished chords sweeping strings but there's always more of an emphasis for music to go right we're looking at a fantastical landscape but what's going on behind the imagery we're seeing and I think that is the key to a great film school that can illustrate what we're not seeing I think. In those early days um, I hadn't quite realised the extent to which Charlie Chaplin was a key figure in, in music, you think of Chaplin as the great iconic performer, but actually he was very adept at and very interested in music and how it worked. Yeah, and that was one of my favourite parts of the book to write. It, again, it was very stimulating and very educational in seeing how scrupulous Chaplin was. And he wasn't musically trained himself, but he would dictate every single note of every single score in one of his films. And he would drive the composers to absolute distraction because even though he wasn't musically trained, he had it in his head exactly what he wanted. And there's a fantastic story that I know I've told you off mic, which is David Raxin, the composer who wrote the score for um, Otto Preminger's Laura, which is one of them, the great like, noir um, mystery scores. But prior to that, David Raxon had worked with Chaplin on, on modern times and temporarily managed to get himself fired when he dared to suggest to Chaplin that this whole musical review sound with which Chaplin had grown up, and well, I don't really think that's the right thing to do. And then Chaplin wrote, right, you little upstart, and he got rid of him. <laughs> he fired yeah. him. And then, and then he had a bit of a change of heart and thought, no, actually, that guy had some guts to stand up to me. And he brought David Raxon him back into it and they had a wonderful collaboration after that yeah. 
which is just fantastic. Of course, that, that again reminds me of Herman and Hitchcock. We did in the past, I've done quite a bit with Herman and his, his film scores and, you know, finding out about the kind of relationship with Hitchcock. But it took Herman to stand up to Hitchcock, famously. The shower scene in, in Psycho, Hitchcock wanted silent. And and Herman said, no, no, just, just go away, um, Hitch, and, and go on holiday for a few days and come back. And you can't really think of the shower scene without those stabbing violins in that soundtrack. And, of course, Hitchcock sort of reluctantly said, you know, yeah, that's maybe not a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> and I, 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 um, I don't know if it's an apocryphal story about him raising Herman's salary. I've read that on the basis of what he did in that sequence. But that was a true collaboration. I mean, two very, very strong men, two astonishing aesthetic pioneers in their respective fields and up to torn curtain one has to really respect Hitchcock's willingness to put music in the foreground of the narrative and to allow music to lead the sequence and also as I said earlier with the illustrative versus expressive argument the music gets underneath and teases out our subconscious understanding of what's going on. I mean, particularly before Psycho, if you think of something like Vertigo, for example, which, as I say in the book, draws a lot on Wagner and Tristan mm. and his God. I mean, Wagner is in the background of all of this. I mean, Wagner's The Ring Cycle, which brought in the um, the leitmotif, the idea of individual themes assigned to characters or objects or, or situations. That runs all the way through film music, particularly in Herman's music. But yeah, I mean, Herman was very, very singular. He, he arrived at a really pivotal point, obviously, long after talking pictures had been established, you know, he arrived with Citizen Kane and he brought a very American sensibility to things, you know, up to that point, film music was that was really dominated by European romanticism as a result of Max Steiner and Eric Wolfgang Korngold. And Bernard Herrmann was contemporaneous with Aaron Copeland, the concert hall composer, who really defined the sound of Americana and concert hall. And he also did film scores as well. All of these composers arrive at different stages and they carve out different collaborations and they they take the medium in different directions. And I think what I wanted to do with the book was chart that from beginning to end. Well, the end in as much as where we are today what you do in the book is is this um fantastic sweep through from those early days steiner and max steiner and that big influence of king kong and his work through him and through into the influence of jazz music in particular through to the 70s and the amazing impact of john williams and jaws and and, and star wars but also Popular music, you know, you mentioned there with Herman, popular music coming into Hollywood, Easy Riders, a film I think about, which was very much using pre-recorded music, but using it in a way which kind of exploded the idea of the soundtrack um, in, in many ways. And then through to the, the blockbuster, which very much continues. Um, and, and bringing it up to date, as you say, with women who are making soundtracks and through to where you think the kind of interest in work is, is happening in soundtracks at the moment. So I thoroughly recommend to the listener The Sound of Cinema, Hollywood Film Music from Silence to Present by Sean and published, who was the publisher again? It's... And McFarland. I asked you to put together a, a season of films kind of illustrating some of the themes in the book. Just talk us through the films that you've ended up with and the ones that we'll be screening. Yeah, so I tried to identify what I considered landmark um, uh, uh, film scores and soundtracks because, as you mentioned, it's not just it's not just it's it's pop soundtracks as well. I, I was quite keen to get at least one film and soundtrack like that in there. 
And I was very pleased by that choice. <laughs> I didn't think it was going to take much persuasion to get that particular film in there. But one can't discriminate because the influence of pop music is really important and it's not just on its own terms but in terms of how it caused composers of bespoke film scores to really up their game and it was all tied in with the changing landscape of teenagers and jazz and materialism and all of that complete i mean psycho was basically alfred hitchcock experimenting with a low budget we're using his tv crew and you know bernard herman wrote what he called a black and white score composed only for strings and that was that was an experimental venture it's just one that happened to be astonishingly successful and like defined the Slasher movie film and indeed soundtrack, but I, I picked. I started off with um, Alex North's Street Car Named Desire purely because it was the first dramatic jazz film score on the big screen, which is quite remarkable to think that that hadn't really been deployed mm. to that extent before. Given that jazz in film is now something we've lived with obviously for decades, it was a real bolt from the blue for the Elia Kazan um, Tennessee Williams adaptation and. The use of an American musical idiom, jazz, to draw out Tennessee Williams's themes, as I said, moving further away from the European romanticism, the Viennese um, concert hall sound that had defined the scores of, as I said, Steiner and Corn Gold, you know, like Gone with the Wind, King Kong, um, Seahawk, Captain Blood, and so on. Street Kind of Desire moved things in a completely different direction, very, very modernistic. Very interesting. Alex North is a, I think, is a very overlooked composer in terms of how important he is. So we've got a track here called um, "Stan and Stella," which is the um, the famous Marlon Brando, Kim Hunter, "Hey Stella" sequence. This is actually a reorchestrated version by Alex North's protege and my personal favourite film composer, Jerry Goldsmith, which which gives it a bit of added welly. So let's just play this, and then I'm sure people will be running the scene <laughs> back through their heads once they hear this. So here we go. incredible listening to that is the film it oozes sexuality and it oozes both repressed but also animalistic from both main characters from Vivian Lee and famously from Brando it's in a kind of hot sweaty New Orleans and jazz really gives it that added dimension doesn't it that that sultriness yeah and I think what it does is the score plays on what were then an audience's implicit understanding of jazz, the fact that jazz sprung from cities like New Orleans in which Streetcar Named Desire takes place. And people understand that, I think, or they understood it back then on a subconscious level, just like they understand it now. Very much of the place. It was of New mm. Orleans, wasn't it? It gave you, it was like another character in, in a way in the, the city. I mean, Alex North's dramatic intuition in picking that is is just absolutely sublime. And again, it's one of those watershed moments in the development of, of film music. But it's not just that. There's also the use of the, um, the heartbreaking use of the Varsuviana polka 
for Blanche, Vivian Lee's memories of the boy who, who died. And that comes through fragmentarily, which sits alongside the jazz. Well, so it's a very, very multifaceted school. Alex North was an incredible experimentalist, but also a great melodist. Mm -hmm. And I think this school plays into both facets of his musical personality and you know, amazing composer. And hugely expressive in that kind of illustrative or expressive, it's hugely expressive of, of the characters, of their inner selves, as you say. I mean, the Blanche's regrets and, you know, the kind of sadness that she lives with compared to Stanley's kind of animalistic sort of, <laughs> um, of the momentness, you know. It's, I mean, it's interesting. I found a quote from Alex North um, that basically he had to compromise his own music at the end in that when the film finishes, there's a grand orchestral upsurge in the music in the manner of a classic or old school melodrama. That's because the producers were a bit squeamish about playing up the morbid sort of desperate outcome of what happens to Blanche so it's amazing even in the midst of this great experimentalism a composer like Alex North would have to compromise his own music to keep things commercial basically to keep things on a level with what audience expectations were at the time because audiences hadn't heard let alone seen anything like this at the time the film came out and the score came out and it is that thing with going back to it and watching it again and seeing it through the, from the music perspective, you see how you, you wouldn't think about Streetcar Named Desire through the music. You'd think about it through uh, the characters and the Tennessee Williams theatre piece and the translation into cinema. You wouldn't think about it in the music, but when you hear it, you see how much you hear how much the, the music amplifies. And moving on, um, you know, another one of the films that that we've got that you're that you're screening a cycle, which I think people would think of the music of for Psycho as much as the kind of iconic film as well. I think the music does come in in a way that, you know, predated Jaws and again that sort of tense riff that was created for, for Jaws. You know, with Psycho you do think of the music. You do I mean it wouldn't be the same experience without the music, would it? And I, I think that the music is so foregrounded right from the very off and it's not just about the jabby you know murder sequence which is probably the most imitated passage of film music in the history of the media i would argue and then you know not unjustifiably but right from the opening credit sequence of psycho obviously the saw bass credit sequence the music assaults you with this very very aggressive modernistic choppy string writing when you first watch it you're kind of like why is the music kind of hitting me like this? And then it obviously does a very, very good job in line with Hitchcock's direction of putting you off the scent of maybe making you think, oh, the psycho, for the unassuming, the psycho might be Janet Lee, Marion Crane, she steals the money. And maybe that's why the music is so aggressive. And then when you watch it back again, it's like, oh no, it's actually an exercise in foreshadowing. You're using the strings to foreshadow the revelation about Norman Bates, Anthony Perkins, and it's a really, really good way to mess with an audience's head as far as music is concerned. But the amount of variety that Bernard Herrmann squeezes out of the string-only ensemble of this is really extraordinary. I mean, even in the scene when she's taken the money and she hasn't yet gone on the road with it. And one of the key things about music, I should bring this up, is the idea of spotting. When are the starting points of the music in the sequence? When are the break points of the music in the sequence? When does the music come? Where does the music go? And that scene in Psycho where we first realise that she's absconded with the money and the music starts when the camera pushes in towards the envelope and it, it's a moment of realisation that, oh, 
she didn't take the money to the bank she still got it and the music tells us that she's moved on a level she's preparing to steal it mm. so brilliant brilliant use of again how music can get underneath the skin of particular sequences or in the case of the shower sequences <laughs> it's perfectly obvious what the music is trying to do I and mean, the fact that the music starts stabbing before the killer even starts stabbing so the music anticipates what's going to happen to marion crane a millisecond before we even perceive it which is one of the reasons why it's so visceral and so terrifying lovely little subtle details like that in herman's music in this well let's have a listen to some of herman's uh, music for psycho together with the film I mean it is an incredible combination of the music portraying the intensity of what is happening on screen as a footnote to this I know a musician who's got a framed score of that the shower sequence in his toilet (laughs) (laughs) Uh, it's always there the thing is and it was a kind of mother of necessity that it's just strings and of course as you mentioned earlier Hitchcock shot it on a low budget so didn't have the resources to you know get a big orchestra and stuff so Herman kind of cut it back and just used the strings it's a sign of his astonishing dramatic intuition. He was already well established as an experimentalist up to this point. You think of the use of the wavering woodwinds in Citizen Kane. The Citizen Kane has got a lot of musical idioms in it. There's mambo, there's salsa in it. Or you think of the the use of the fandango for the theme for North by Northwest, which obviously was the year before Psycho, to give this kind of like panning sense of like comic chaos coming in from all different directions. It shows if a composer has got the dramatic intuition, that will always transcend the technical limitations of what they're working with the synchronicity of the music in psycho is brilliant i mean the way that before she's murdered when she's driving to what then turns out to be the basement so the way the stabby strings of that opening credits thing come back and the way it syncs up with the windscreen wipers it's anticipatory in all the most terrifying ways i'd love to go back to 1960 and just see what the reactions of a somewhat naive unassuming audience would be on hearing that music so right what what's this music telling us because obviously they didn't know what the hell was going to happen and of course hitchcock played up on that famously said you cannot go in you know once the film started nobody can go in and get ambulances lined up in case your reaction (laughs) he he knew what he had on his hands both with the film as a film but also the the power of the music i'm absolutely sure yeah absolutely yeah just era defining masterpiece that continues to be influential even on pretty much every horror score that comes out And, and funnily enough you've got the omen Jerry Goldsmith, because, you know, The Omen, again, was a film for me which, you know, really had an impact, um, along with The Exorcist, in depicting evil, you know. And and the score for The Omen just does that as well. When You you know, it's like you hear the score, you get that feeling of unease that The Omen has. And it's so interlinked, it becomes very difficult to separate out the feeling of watching it, The Omen as a visual storytelling with the music. Yeah, well, it's a fascinating thing because um, the late Richard Donner, bless him, conceived the movie as a psychological thriller. It deals with the birth of the Antichrist and how he ultimately will go about assembling his minions on Earth. Richard Donner doesn't really have an awful lot of satanic imagery in the movie, apart from one or two little bits. And in many 
many ways Jerry Goldsmith's music makes explicit what Richard Donner wants to keep implicit but it's the music that makes the film work. I mean, the film is perfectly sort of creepy and, you know, great performances from Gregory Peck and Lee Remick and Billy Whitelaw and David Warner, but the music imbues it with so much more dimension and so much more meaning, and it increases the suspense because when we're looking at an apparently ordinary situation with Gregory Peck and Lee Remick's characters, and outwardly, in terms of the composition, in terms of what we're watching, there might be nothing particularly untoward, that music comes in, the Ave Satani, the Gregorian um, chanting, the satanic black mass, and automatically an apparently normal sequence is transfigured into being something bone-chillingly terrifying. And we know that there are forces lurking beyond the edge of the frame, thanks to Jerry Goldsmith. And he imparts more meaning as to what's actually going on in the film and why this situation is actually so terrifying with, with young Damien, the fact that these forces are swirling around the characters, we can hear it, but the characters initially don't realise it, but we do. We perceive it as the audience because we're watching the film and we hear the music. Just a magnificent example of how music can heighten, if not define, an entire movie above and beyond what it initially was going to be, I think. Well, well let's remind ourselves of, of uh, Jerry Goldsmith's score for The Omen. Listening to that again, I am transported to my teenage self watching The Omen for the first time and being terrified by it. And you're absolutely right in that you know, as a film, it's not the greatest film. Um, it's 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 not it's not up there with The Exorcist, but the music, as you say, sets and creates the atmosphere, the mood. I have to say, Billy Whitewall was terrifying. Mm. <laughs> But yeah, just just how music can, in this instance, transform, um, you know, what is a kind of, not brilliant, but good enough film, but really transform it into being something feeling more demonic and, and, and satanic, that kind of atmosphere. Well, I think arguably that's the greatest horror score ever composed. I think Psycho is probably a very, very close second, but you know, it won Jerry Goldsmith his only Oscar, which is astonishing. I mean, you know, Jerry Goldsmith is my personal favourite film composer, and you know, his bona fides were more than established in the run-up to the Omen. You know, he'd done Chinatown, Planet of the Apes, Papillon, Patton, the Blue Max. I mean, a really remarkable composer who advanced that very aggressive, modernistic style of Alex North, but was able to fuse it with lyrical beauty where necessary. There is lyrical beauty in the Omen. One of the great things about the Omen score is that it's a domestic tragedy about the husband and wife that are basically ripped apart by a satanic conspiracy. And you've got the new ambassador love theme, which is ripplingly gorgeous. Mm. And it offsets the demonic chaos that we heard in that track, which is called The Demise of Mrs. Baylock, which, which accompanies the death of Billy Whitelaw's character in, the, in that climactic fight with Gregory Peck. And it's just an example of how what might otherwise seem like a fairly by-the-numbers scene is transfigured into a 
demonic satanic apocalyptic battle between good and evil particularly towards the end of that track you hear the male and female vocals are literally in like a tussle with each other like high at high and low up and down and it, it's really terrifying i mean i remember that score making a huge impression on me when i first watched that as a teenager i'd never heard anything like that before it's really quite remarkable well, in testament to the power of music in film, it is often that initial subconscious recognition through sound that you're picking up on things. And now to Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, Sam Peckinpah's film, which famously had Bob Dylan both in it and also the soundtrack, which I had never really, in my mind, factored into being a kind of good example of the use of music. Obviously, great music and an absolute brilliant film. Sam Peckinpah, one of his, his finest films, but... Why, why did you want to feature it within the sound of cinema? Well, I think because the idea of using a pre-existing um, popular artist effectively as the musical auteur of the project, which was still relatively new around the time that, that Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid came out in the early 1970s. This was coming in the wake of The Graduate and Easy Rider, both of which arguably cemented what I just said, the idea of you don't need a bespoke musical score, although The Graduate did have a score by Dave Grusin, but that's not really what people remember in The Graduate. They remember Simon and Garfunkel and you know, Sound of Silence, Mrs. Robinson. And that really made waves in Hollywood in terms of the idea that you can secure the attention of the fickle teenage audience by playing on their expectations, by securing music that they'd already heard. In the book, I make the case this goes right the way back to the 1950s with Blackboard Jungle. This is basically where it all started with Bill Haley and his comments, Rock Around the Clock, and the idea of rock and roll was tied into the this transgressive teenage movement that, that had literally come out of nowhere as being decried for its like, you know, immorality and, you know, chaos and everything. But this is the way society was going and film film soundtracks away from original film music latched onto this. And I think I chose Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid because it was kind of like another important step in that journey in terms of how do you communicate with a modern audience whose expectations and ideologies are so wildly different from what had come in like 1930s and 1940s and Bob Dylan has got that in his voice and in his musical arrangements for the movie. He's got that melancholic lament that I think very much fits in with Sam Peckinpah's kind of like nihilistic, like despairing view of the world. And of course, he 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 wrote the music for the film. I mean, that he was on the set, he was writing the music. It wasn't in the way that Easy Rider, Dennis Hopper wanted to use Dylan's, you know, pre-existing songs. This was actually written for the film, probably during the making of the film, but but certainly for the film. But of course, it's most famously known for Knocking on Heaven's Door, which people might not relate the hit song, as it were, or the or Dylan's song with Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, ironically. I mean, I didn't even know prior to writing the book that this was even written for Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. I watched it for the first time when I was writing the book. I was like, oh, yeah, because I mean, I think I'm probably remember more the Guns N' Roses cover of it. I imagine a lot of people might probably would remember the Guns N' Roses cover a lot more. Yeah, you're right. You know, you don't use pre-existing music from artists. You get a pre-existing artist to write original music and, you know, and therefore the artist can imbue their personality and their iconography onto the score and that can secure the interest of the ever fickle young person's market, which was so important in Hollywood around this point. I mean, late 60s, early 70s, you know, rules and conventions had broken down, rules and conventions of filmmaking had broken down. There was a lot of disillusionment at loose in, in Hollywood's culture. And it's really fascinating seeing how music moved with that and how music was taking on 
these these new structures. I mean, I mean, film scores we're doing this are not just pop soundtracks, but you think of, as I mentioned earlier, Jerry Goldsmith's Planet of the Apes, which is basically Stravinsky. I mean, it's completely kind of dysrhythmic and atonal. Again, no one had ever heard anything like that before, but it makes sense of the movie because if that had been done with a conventional orchestral score, it probably just would have been overwhelming and cumbersome and it would have swamped the movie and it wouldn't have imbued it with more meaning. And it's also the way in which, interestingly enough, this popular medium can actually introduce quite dissonant avant-garde music, but it's incorporated within the narrative. Herman electronic sounds for the birds. Um, I mean, if you took that as a soundtrack, it would be completely out there. But, you know, when you put it together with the film, that he uses very abstract sounds. Going back to Pat Gannett and Bill the Kids, it was a fusion, as you say, of the teenage market, the counterculture, you know, bringing it together with a legendary director. But famously, Sam Peckinpah, he, he didn't incorporate Knocking on Heaven's Door into his cut because he just he felt the studios were foisting this person on him to be popular. Yeah, and it was contentious in the idea of like the director's cut of Pat Garrett and Billy the Kids. And yeah, it, it sounds like it was a turbulent production. And yeah, Sam Peckapal obviously wasn't invested in Bob Dylan as an artist on his movie. I mean, obviously Sam Peckapal was a very, very singular, difficult character. I find it hard to imagine anything being automatically pleasing for him. I imagine there was a lot of persuasion going on. You know, I think he was in quite a troubled place. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting, the idea that new approaches to film music are led by the contextual, cultural eras of the time. So you think as we went into the 60s, the teenage market was taking hold, which then in turn fueled the idea of popular artists doing more and more film music. But is it a case of the tail wagging the dog? Because what that then meant was that idea was then adopted and then that then fueled the idea of popular artists doing more music and more films took their lead from that approach that had been defined by the contextual issues. So it's like what's leading what? If the film's leading the music, the music then leads the films and things go on from there. Maybe, maybe I can touch on that one with the sort of future direction, but the final film that we've got is Superman, which brings on John Williams. We did want Jaws, Star Wars, one of those kind of big iconic films, but for various rights reasons, we were not able to screen them. But we have got them represented through Superman. Let's listen to a bit of Superman first. Superman, yeah, it spells it out in the music. It's so John Williams, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. And it, it's also so much everything else because the brilliance of what John Williams did in the 70s with Jaws, with Star Wars, with Superman, and then onwards to like Indiana Jones and E.T. and so on, is he resurrected the symphonic spirit of 1930s and 1940s Hollywood, which hadn't completely gone away. I mean, let's not, as I just said, Jerry Goldsmith was really in a purple patch in the 19. 19- 70s but I think he had more of an experimental touch than John Williams did John Williams really brought that European concert hall Mm. symphonic bombast roaring back into Hollywood which again was in many ways defined by the context of the filmmakers with which he was working George Lucas Steven Spielberg 
these were from the new Hollywood filmmakers who had grown up being very cine literate through watching films on television. And they wanted to resurrect the tone of the serials, the, the TV serials they'd watched and the comic book serials that they'd watched. Obviously, Superman was directed by Richard Donner. The idea being that there was a new tranche of filmmakers who basically realised that nostalgia could be really commodified and could be really sold for a new generation as in like, this is what you've been missing. And John Williams was absolutely pivotal, absolutely key to that. And Superman, it's the granddaddy of the comic book score with comic book movies are now the dominant theatrical blockbuster genre. And in terms of the scores, it all started with John Williams and Superman, as you hear in that theme. And you can hear slight touches of Star Wars and yeah. you, know, you can hear elements of the orchestration that's hinting at what will come in the way that, similar to Herman, you can hear certain elements that, that kind of come through. It doesn't make them the same and it doesn't make them similar in every film, but there's distinct things that are happening that, that are then further explored, I guess. Yeah, the harmonic colours in the orchestration and the way that John Williams is able to use... He, he uses our implicit expectations of what the symphonic film score can do, as, as heard in the likes of Eric Korngold, you know, the pirate scores of the, of the 1930s and 40s and the way he builds an our implicit understanding of that, but put, imbues it with his own voice. And you can hear it in that main theme. It spells out Superman. Richard Donner said himself that he when he went to the recording, John Williams practically uses the brass to spell out the, you know, the stands of Superman. You can hear the way it's staggered rhythmically throughout that mm. piece. I mean, it's just astonishingly stirring as so much of John Williams's music is. It's both stirring and as, as an audience member it really lifts you, doesn't mm. it? I mean it really sort of, made, in a way you kind of want to stand up, you know, it's almost like there's a sort of marching band type sort of under, you know, vibe going on in it you know. Yeah, and as we record this three weeks previously I saw John Williams live at the Carnegie Hall in New York. It's as close as you get to watching a modern day Mozart or Beethoven or Brahms or Haydn and you think that his dramatic intuition the rhythmic intuition the melodic intuition is genuinely extraordinary and he is an experimentalist I mean one could see it as being a shame he was defined by the blockbuster movies because prior to Superman he did films like Robert Altman's Images which has got a really disturbing score there's there's percussive effects by Stommer Yamashita that's one of John Williams's most interesting and as it turns out rather atypical scores and you to think of how his career might have gone had he not done Jaws and Star Wars and Superman. It's to our immense benefit that he did go down that route. It's Superman. You can't, you can't say a bad word about that. It's just, it's just absolutely astonishing. <laughs> just... All these films that we mentioned, Street Carnival, Desire, Cycle, Pat Garrett and Bill the Kid, The Omen and Superman will be on Watershed throughout June. And Sean, you're going to be doing a, an illustrated talk as well. So people will be able to come and um, hear more and hear some of the work in the cinema. And also you'll be doing recorded introductions for some of the films. So a great opportunity for people to uh, see some films that they might be familiar with, but will hopefully see and listen to in, in, in different ways. I, I knew this podcast should have been longer, Sean. But <laughs> it's been absolutely fantastic sharing your insights into um, the sound of cinema. And as I say, it's a fantastic read. And I do urge people, if you want to find out a bit more, really, to get the book, because it's, it's very readable and it's hugely insightful into, into cinema 
and great interviews with some of the people that are making some fantastic music for cinema. And Sean, I will need to get you back to talk about contemporary work and we'll maybe in the future look at a season of films looking at current practice and who's doing some interesting things. I know that, for example, this month um, we're showing Men, Alex Garland's new film, which is being scored by Jeff Barrow of Portishead and Ben Salisbury. So that's, you know, looking forward to seeing... Actually, where do you feel the kind of interesting work is happening in music and film? It's a really, really interesting question that one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book was the idea that, oh, they don't make them like they used to. There's no great music anymore. I mean, you know, it's nonsense. There's a lot of really extraordinary film music being written, not just big blockbuster movies, but one of the people I would cite is Daniel Pemberton, who's a very, very versatile composer. who's Guy Ritchie's The Man From Uncle to Enola Holmes on Netflix recently, like The Bad Guys, the, the new animated movie. Very, very, very versatile composer who completely reinvents himself with every new movie not unlike what a jerry goldsmith would have done in his prime perhaps i often think that experimental film scores in the modern age get more notice because i think that the notion of the symphonic film score has been so entrenched ever since max steiner with king kong when people hear a score like that for whatever kind of film people think oh there's nothing inherently new about that. I think people tend to downplay the idea of a melody, of interlinking themes. And I think that's a mistake because somewhat nostalgic, familiar, like fancy symphonic scores have got just as much to say as you know, new experimental scores, etc. I think we tend to attach ourselves to the latter a little bit more because things do sound more strange, more avant-garde, more, more weird. There are really remarkable composers, several really. I mean, you know, you mentioned. Jeff and Ben there, who've done such brilliant work with um, with Alex Garland on Ex Machina and Annihilation. I can't wait to see what they've done with men. You've got Ludwig Göransson, who's come out of his collaborations with Childish Gambino and has done Black Panther, recently turning red, you know, the Disney Pixar. It had a very, very eccentric kind of all over the place score turning red did. And then you've got the people who are carrying on the symphonic tradition, the symphonic pra practitioners. You've got Michael Giacchino, who's quoted in the book, Alan Silvestri, who scored Avengers Endgame. There's Howard Shaw, who did Lord of the Rings, who's coming back this summer with Crimes of the Future, the David Cronenberg. So I can't wait to hear what, what, mm -hmm. what they're going to do with that. I'm optimistic. I think we do tend to give in to pessimism. It's like they don't they don't make them like they used to. Well, they do, but it's just a more diversified landscape. I think you've got to look harder and try and work out. There's there's so much diversity of content. I think. Yeah. Well, I mean, as 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 you've illustrated, a hugely rich area. And uh, um, if you're just starting out on this, or if if you want to find out more, then I'd recommend Sean's book. Is certainly a good way into it. Uh, so go to watershed.co.uk to find out more about the season and we hopefully see you in the cinema. Thanks very much, Sean. Thank you, Mark. Thanks very much. Thanks.